I'd invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to turn our attention to the first nine verses of this passage. But I want to begin with this thought uh, before we read the text. <clears throat> and the thought is this. We experience conflict on multiple levels each day. Let's start with the more current, global, and obvious, uh, the missile crisis in Taiwan. Or if you've uh, spent the last five months in Europe, you spent five months waking up like me with a quiet dread. What's the next catastrophic event that I'm going to read in my flipboard today? But that's not all. There's other ongoing conflicts uh, that you may not be aware of and doesn't make front page media, like the wars in Afghanistan, civil war in Afghanistan, Yemen, Ethiopia, drug war in Mexico. Then there's the sexuality war, the race war, the climate war, and now nuclear war through Ukraine. And the challenge that we, we face today is that we are so interconnected that we find things out in real time. That means we suffer in real time. We get angry in real time. We're anxious in real time. And one of the things that I'm learning is that in our connected world, in our social media culture, our internet culture, we can't cope with more than one crisis at a time. It can be overwhelming. How? Do we find peace amidst global conflicts? But let me bring that down to a personal level. Um, we struggle with interpersonal conflict, if we're honest, right? If you're like me, you wish you didn't, but the fact is you do, and you struggle to find peace in interpersonal conflict. But let me bring that down to even a more personal level. Frankly, I am tired of being a sinner. I, I'm, I'm tired of my own sin. I'm at conflict with myself. And in light of that, how do we, in light of all this, global, relational, personal, how do we find peace? And this is the question that I want us to hold before us before, as we study the text. How do you find peace in a world where you are constantly surrounded by trouble. Paul gives us three faces of conflict and then three pillars of peace, and that's going to be the structure for our text. But let's read it together. Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends 
all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So let's start with three faces of conflict. You see, Paul is writing to a church that's facing conflict on multiple levels. He's writing to two church members, Syntyche and Euodia, and they've had some fallout. We don't know exactly what it is, but they've had some sort of fallout they can't resolve. They've dug in their heels, probably become known in the church with nicknames like Syntyche the obtuse or Euodia the overly touchy. And apparently, these two battle axes have slugged it out for some time, and you sense Paul's exasperation when he writes, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. But the conflict goes even deeper. In chapter 3, verse 18, we read, For as I have often told you before, now I say again with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross. Church planting is, in, in my opinion, one of the toughest jobs in the face of the planet. I can think of fewer things that infuriates the enemy as, and drives him to torpedo growth. So in church planting, missionary work, it, you expect opposition. However, after the years, the years we've spent in church planting, it's the unexpected opposition which has left the deepest wounds. What do I mean? It's the attacks of those who profess to be Christian who tear down the church. Like Paul, many of us give our lives to church, church planting, church revitalization, and it was his normal practice to go, into, to go to a place where the gospel had not been preached, present the gospel, and then he gathered those people into churches. But what happened often would be that teachers would, would come in later and advance personal agendas, and whole ministries would just fall like a house of cards. I remember sitting with a missionary at one point who shared with me um, a particular struggle in ministry where, you know, ministry was falling apart. And he said, David, I've invested 30 years of my life in this ministry, in these people, and in 30 days, it seems like it's all come to naught. Whole ministries falling apart. That pain, that conflict, that damage, that opposition brought tears to Paul's eyes. And Paul writes this letter with a broken heart. But... Paul's conflict goes even deeper than that. Paul's writing this letter from prison. That most likely means he's chained to a guard. We read that in chapter 1, verse 13. And he's facing the very real prospect of execution in Rome. So he's not writing, we need to realize, he's not writing as some armchair academic 
or some activist saying, all we're saying is give peace a chance. Rather, he's writing as a brokenhearted, tear-filled believer who is facing the real prospect of death, and he's saying, you know what? Peace is possible. It's possible. Here's Here's the point that Paul is making. Peace is not the absence of conflict. You can have peace while ministry is falling apart in front of your eyes, when attacks become personal, when your days are filled with the utter chaos of young kids, when you're facing the insecurity of a new ministry initiative or a career move, when war is on the horizon and even in the face of death. Jesus speaks directly to this issue in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said to his disciples, I have told you, I have told you these things so that you might have peace. And then he immediately goes on to say, in this world you will have trouble. In other words, the peace that Jesus offers is not the absence of conflict or trouble. Somehow Jesus is saying that you can have peace at the same time you're struggling with trouble. How? And then Paul mentions three ways. These are the three pillars of peace. Shortly, succinctly put, get right, get soft, get down. Three pillars of peace. Get right, get soft, and get down. First of all, uh, and when these three things are established in your life, he writes, you will experience the peace of God which transforms all understanding, guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So let's look at those three things together. Three pillars of peace. First, get right with God. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Peace begins by pursuing a right relationship with God. The word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. When you greet somebody on the street at that day, you'd say shalom, meaning I wish may things be to you as they ought to be. Paul writes in verse 9 that that God is a God of peace. That means in God, everything is as it ought to be. There's nothing disordered, nothing out of place, nothing out of control, nothing out of character. So when God created the world, he created it at peace. It was marked by shalom. That means men and women walked with him without any awkwardness. They walked next to each other without any shame, fear, or guilt, or conflict. And in their relationship with God and with each other, they experienced nothing but joy and harmony. Can you imagine what that's like? When sin entered into the world, it broke the world in three places. In our relationship with him, in our relationship with each other's, and in our own hearts. The whole Bible, the story of all of Scripture is focused on one singular conflict. How? How is God going to bring shalom back to his creation? So you see, Adam and Eve went from profound intimacy to profound fear of him. 
I remember watching a family video in which Ethan and I were, uh, Ethan, who's sitting here in the front row, and I were playing hide and seek. He was three at the time, so his hideouts weren't exactly strategic <laughs> or innovative. But there's one in which he's hiding in the closet, the same closet I found him in the last three times we played this game. And I'm going around here, you know how we do this as dads and moms, well, could Ethan be here in the clothes basket? And you hear in this video this giddy snickering and this little mousy voice saying, nope, not there. <laughs> Is he behind the lamp? Nope, nope, not there, I'm over here. <laughs> Under the rug, no, I'm in the closet. <laughs> And I'd open up the door and there'd be this, this joyous laughter and he'd jump into my arms and then we'd close the door and we'd do it all again. <laughs> you see, that was Eden. That was Eden. That was God with Adam and Eve. But you see, after the fall, they began a new form of hide and seek. God didn't, his heart didn't thump when God came near. Rather, they ran away in fear. They didn't know anymore what to expect when God opened the door. Shalom was broken, and they were, be, they were afraid of being found. Francis Thompson describes his own hide-and-seek relationship in his poem, well-known poem, Hound of Heaven. He writes this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him. Down the arches of the years, I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. And in the, in the midst of tears, I hid from him. As long as you're hiding from God, you will never have peace, ever. That's what God says in Isaiah chapter 57. The wicked are like the tossing of the sea which cannot rest. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You see, the gospel... The story of Scripture, the gospel, is fundamentally an invitation, an invitation to come out of hiding, an invitation to come out of hiding into the arms of a loving and forgiving God. You see, Christ came into the world to make things as they ought to be between God and you. You don't need to keep fighting an unwinnable war of disobedience towards God. The gospel says, come out, be reconciled to him. You can have shalom with God through Jesus Christ. So that's Paul's starting point with peace. Rejoice in the Lord. He was reconciled with God. He had peace with God through the blood of Jesus. So even with a broken heart, even with the prospect of a violent death, He's able to rejoice in the Lord. Secondly, get soft. Not only get right, but get soft, meaning show gentleness to others. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. In a post-Eden world, it is simply impossible to be right in every, for thing, everything to be right in every relationship. Take comfort in Jesus' words when he says, love your enemies, because to me that's clearly implying that along the way you're going to inevitably have some enemies to love. 
One of my besetting sins is I am a people pleaser. I told my kids, told my family, I really only have two goals in life. I'm a very simple man. Two goals. To be highly successful and well-liked by all. (laughs) Only two goals. How's that working out for me, you ask? Well, if I'm honest, not particularly well. (laughs) I wish everything would be as it ought to be with every single person, but there are some things that I have learned, and one of those is I don't have the power to change certain things. As one writer put it, conflict is a two-way street, and sometimes there are crazy drivers on the other side of the road. And I think Scripture recognizes this as well. It never assumes that you need to resolve every single conflict in your life before you can experience peace with God. Yes, you are called. We are all called to be peacemakers. Romans 12, if, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with, all, with everyone. And in our passage, he gives us a path towards peace. And it's surprising. Gentleness towards all. You see, gentleness is like the shock absorbers in your car. If you've ever ridden, ever ridden in a car without them, or if they wear out, the ride's rough. Shock absorbers provide some give between the road and the car so that it cushions the harshness of travel. Gentleness is the shock absorber of the spirit. We live in a harsh and unforgiving world, a world full of conflict, and people are poised and even encouraged to be offended and victimized by an ever-growing list of infractions. In that world, Paul says, stop. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And the problem is... The problem I find in my own heart is this, the longer that I live, the longer that I'm in leadership, the more my shock absorbers absorbers seemingly wear out. I become rigid, rusted, with little give in relationships, so that the harshness uh, that I experience, I then pass on to others. Paul's saying, no, 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 stop. Don't be like that. Be a shock absorber as you move through life. Commit to not passing on the knocks. Commit to taking pleasure in protecting others from the pain, even if it means absorbing it yourself. Let me be very practical. One of the ways we can do this is by approaching conflict in a certain way, rather than approaching it by assuming the worst of motives, Attributing the worst reading of a situation, try thinking of every possible reason, defense that you could give for their words and actions. Defend their position. Think of all the extenuating circumstances. Bend over backwards to identify something good in their behavior or in their motives. And you'll be amazed, amazed how it'll soften your spirit towards them. Early on in ministry among refugees, we met an extraordinary woman from Iran. However, she could be extraordinarily demanding and annoying. 
And in one particular small group, she began to share her story. She was imprisoned and left to rot for three years in an Iranian jail. Can you imagine what that does to a person? It changed our perspective of her instantly. One of my favorite podcasts is called Unbelievable. I put on by Premier Christian Radio in the UK. And it's a podcast which gets Christians and non-Christians talking about ethical, political, religious topics. And I remember listening to one podcast with my kids. And as we typically do, we'd listen. And then I would ask, so what do you think of that? And as usual, there's a very long silence. And then one spoke up and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, you know what, Dad? The Christian may have won the argument, but lost my interest because they were such a jerk. How many times are you successful in winning an argument, but you fail to show people Jesus? You see, the rightness of your cause never justifies the harshness of your spirit, ever. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Thirdly, not only get right, get soft, get down, meaning learn to pray. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Worry is a tremendous power and force in our lives. It, it grips the mind, it grips the heart, it overtakes the imagination. And in particular, the more imaginative you are, the more it'll wreck, create havoc in your life. I find it particularly productive at night. If you do not intentionally fight against it, it will take you captive and make you a slave to fear. Telling, telling an anxious person not to worry is about as effective as telling a fish not to drink the water. It just doesn't work. So what help does Paul offer us? He gives us a very practical strategy to fight worry. Get on your knees. Pray. So for many of us, when it comes to prayer, we're like the kid who goes to school, and after the first day, he says to his parents, Mom, Dad, that was all well and good. Um, but as far as this school thing, I think I got out, out of it as, bad a much, as, bad, as much as I could possibly go. I don't think it's worth going back again. We've all prayed. We've probably all experienced times when it doesn't seemingly work. And we've all probably asked the question, if it doesn't work, is it really worth it? But if we pray like Paul instructs, prayer is not Christian code for worrying on your knees. I must admit that many of my prayers begin with, dear Father, and with amen, and in the middle, I'm in full panic mode. That's not the way to fight worry through prayer. Look at how Paul defines prayer in this passage. He says prayer is filling your mind with who he is. It's bringing your requests before him and expressing confidence in his goodness. So let's break that down quickly. It's filling your mind with who he is. You see, prayer is entering into God's presence and filling your mind with deep truths. 
It's, it's letting a deep sense of who he is fill your soul like marinating tandoori chicken. I mean by that. You listen to it. You let it soak into every crevice and corner of your being until it permeates every corner of your heart. You see, that's what Paul's getting at in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, think about those things. So do you begin prayer by marinating your heart on these truths, truths like, God, you are sovereign. You, you are good. You are for me. All your promises come true. You see, that's why it's so important to combine prayer and Bible reading so that the deep truths sink in. Secondly, he also says you need to learn to unpack your worries before him. Imagine if all your worries are like bricks and, and stones in, in a backpack. Do you ever open the bag? Open the bag, notice what's dragging you down, and then begin to take them out one by one. You see, some of us really never really fight worry effectively because we never start by marinating our thoughts with deep truths. Others of us never really fight worry because we don't ever look in the bag. Paul says, bring your fears, bring your worries out of the darkness where they grow and where they thrive and bring them into light before God. Tell them your worries. Spell out all your what ifs. Be clear, be specific. You see, your Father in heaven is great enough to handle the darkest fears at the bottom corner of your bag. And he's caring enough to be attentive to the smallest stones. Thirdly, thanksgiving is ultimately, you know, how to fight worry through prayer. Thanksgiving is ultimately about expressing confidence in God. And it starts with knowing, God, you are, you are for me, you are with me, so that whatever happens, I'm great, grateful that my life is in your hands. Without thanksgiving, your prayer life is going to look like last week's grocery list or next, week, next year's Christmas list. God wants to hear all your requests, but he also wants you to count your blessings. Remember David's words in Psalm 103, praise the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. See, God's blessings are, are more numerous than the sand and the seashore. There's no way that we can remember them all. But that's no reason to forget them all either. Cultivate the discipline of remembering the great things that God has done for you. You see, thanksgiving refreshes our soul and brings joy to the heart of God. So in the face of struggle, Paul gives us three pillars which, peace, uh, which give us peace. Get right, get soft, and get down. And when those three pillars are in place, he writes, the peace of God will transcend all understanding. It will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the promise God gives us in this text. Let me close with this. In 1965, the Cleveland Philharmonic Orchestra performed Mozart's Magic Flute in Tbilisi, Georgia. 
that's not Georgia south of us, by the way. It's the, the other one. So the concert hall was absolutely, was sold out, packed. And you could feel, if you've ever been to a concert like this, you could feel the enthusiasm in the room. And then they began to play. And then something happened that no one expected in the room. A massive hailstorm hit, cutting off all power to the concert hall. Undaunted, without hesitation, they continued playing. Imagine, couldn't see a blessed thing. And yet, they kept playing. They played the entire piece, the entire concert to the end. Didn't miss a note or a beat without seeing anything. Obviously, the, the audience was awed, amazed, and at the end, standing ovations, minutes long. How do you find peace when you're constantly surrounded by trouble? You know the gospel so well that you can hear it, you can sing it, you can pray it, you can play it, even when the lights go out in your life. See, God promised that he would restore the shalom of Eden. He promised to be with us in the wilderness. He promised to bring us back to an even greater peace, to an even better garden. So imagine the gospel like this. Imagine this scene. You've been cast out of Eden, plunging you, yourself, and all humanity into a world of suffering and death. Just let that sink in for a moment. You stand and you're looking back at Eden, shalom lost. The weight of your rebellion and the chaos of the wilderness begins to overwhelm you. But imagine seeing a figure leaving the peace of Eden, walking past the cherubim with flaming swords to be near to you to embrace you, to bind your wounds. You see, his gentleness absorbs the harshness of the desert. And imagine this same person taking your hand, turning and walking with you back towards the cherubim. And as he draws near to the flaming swords, to your horror, they cut him down. But then you notice this, the swords fall to the ground and now the way to Eden is open to you. It's open for you to enter into God's shalom again. You see, Jesus bore the pain of the desert that we might know the peace of an even better garden. Jesus took the cursed blows of God's holiness towards our sin so that we might receive God's blessings forever. Jesus defeated all powers and temptations of this present desert that you might share in a freedom, in a victory over sin and death forever. That's why Paul says, he is our peace. Being a missionary is simply being willing to go out in the desert and call others who are struggling as much as you are in the desert and pointing them to the hope of a better Eden. When that penetrates your heart, that you are at peace through God, 
through his curse-absorbing gentleness, you find a peace that surpasses all understanding in this life. You stop hiding in the shadows. You stop dealing with others harshly. You find joy in prayer, and you are willing to go to the ends of the earth, any corner of this desert, and proclaim peace. Show them peace. Show them hope. It enables you, like Paul, with a chain on his hand and burdens in his heart to say the peace of God, the gospel which transforms all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your story, the story, the only story that brings hope, order to the chaos of our lives. And I pray that we never forget that our task is truly unfinished. And we long to see those at the corners of every desert come home, no peace, no joy in all that they do. So would you equip us as your people with the power of the gospel to help people see you, the one willing to take the curse in order that we live with blessing forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name.